Hello everyone, it's November 14th, 2023. Remember that electron failure a couple months ago? Well, Rocket Lab found the problem and hopefully the solution. Also on the show, Benchmark Space Systems. They're going to tell us about smart, advanced in-space mobility and some other cool stuff. It's a big show, so let's launch it and lift off. And we've the tower. Welcome to episode 434 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So last week we talked about Dinkanesh and its moon. Uh, turns out there's two of them, right? Uh, yeah, well, it's funny because when not, you say or, two yeah. of them, you think, right, yeah. Dinkanesh is one, its moon is a second. But what do you actually mean? It's what's called a contact binary. So I guess, does that classify as two moons? I actually don't know. No, I don't think you really. would count it. Uh, it it's, it's like two ping pong balls hot glued together. So like... We just happened to approach this thing at just the right angle so that we couldn't see one half of of this very uh, bulbous moon. It's so cool. Like, discovery is exciting, and this is, like, really unexpected. You know, we already got the surprise of uh, binary, and now we get a secondary surprise. It's very, very neat. We've kind of been screwed over like this before in the past. I think uh, when New Horizons, after it flew by Pluto... The next, uh, you know, when it went and flew by uh, Arakoth, that uh, Kuiper Belt object, we also were approaching it like pole on or something like that. Mm-hmm. And as a result, we couldn't like measure its light curve and try to figure out its shape or anything. And then we finally got there and it was like kind of caught us off guard. But yeah, everybody originally thought it was like a snowman, but it's really more like two, like an almond and like like an ravioli yeah. kind of. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, flat. yeah. It's crazy because like the the instincts that you have about dynamics are not always right. Like you would think that this would be the highest energy state where they're, you know, touching at their very, very wide equators. And like, how, how would they balance like that? It's like, well, probably because they were spinning, I'm assuming, right? Like (laughs) when they're, when they're spinning, that's actually a fairly low energy way to combine because their spin axes are aligned real quick. We need to come up with a good name um, cause if we do it first then, then we get to name it. And so the, the big one is Dinkanesh. And then I think the smaller one, I think we can give it two names, right? So we could name the big one Dinkanesh and the small one Dink, Dinky and Nash, maybe Dinky Lobe A and Dinky Lobe B. <laughs> no, 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 no. I think, I think Dinky and Nash are great names for the contact binary. Dinky and so, Nash. So yeah, it's a, it's a Dinkanesh, Dinkanesh system. <laughs> Yeah, Colin suggests uh, Dinky and Winky, which is also very good, but it's a little uh, Teletubby E. We might have copyright issues. Rocket Lab failure analysis. We finally have one. Uh, so this is this is this is awesome. It didn't take too long, right? It was only. I don't know, a couple of weeks or was it a month? I don't remember. Time flies, but December 19th or September 19th. Yeah. So almost two months. Yeah. So, and do you recall what your leading theory was, Ben? Cause I know we talked about this a lot. We were looking at, you know, shadows and yeah. <laughs> make best guess. Mm. Yeah. So, um, I, I was saying it, it's a flash from outside the combustion chamber and I don't, I don't remember if I put, if I, if I got any more specific than that, um, I think I was saying it might be a, a rupture. And then Dennis, I think you suggested an electrical arc with the batteries and that just sounded really good. And it, and it turns out that, yeah, it was, it was the batteries. Good job, Dennis. Yeah. I mean, we, we put our heads together and we're going to come up with something pretty good. Like we, we bounce back and forth pretty well. 
So th- this mission was called uh, We Will Never Desert You, and it was the second of four Acadia launches. That's the Acadia spacecraft made by Cata- uh, Capella Space. And uh, I've got a quote. The cause of the anomaly is a highly complex set of conditions that are extremely difficult to replicate in testing. And if that didn't make it bad enough, this was a very fast failure. They only had 1.6 seconds worth of data between the first indication of the problem and losing contact with the second stage. So they they had to dig through these 1.6 seconds and, and figure out what went wrong. Most of this is coming from their shareholders report, um, which there's a, a on Wikipedia, there's a link to their uh, to a PDF of the the PowerPoint that they're running. And I'll have a link to that PDF in the show notes as well. Um, and there's uh, a lot of not failure stuff, but there's a good two, uh, two slides of this. So they've got, you know, 1.6 seconds. So here's, here's what we see. Separation happened at T plus 148.48 seconds. Yes, they're getting into hundreds of a second here because things happen fast. After separation, the igniter pressure builds as expected, and then the fuel and liquid oxygen pump speeds begin to raise up, and they say that they, um, you know, came up as expected. And then the bright flash that we were talking about for so long, that happens at uh, T plus uh, 151.7 seconds. And that's basically where the data starts to show something weird happening. Right after that bright flash, uh, the motor controller input voltage started to fall. The pump speeds, which were rising, at that point they take a quick drop off, and then they kind of, I don't want to call it stabilizing because they weren't stable, but from a, a sharp drop off they move into a slowly descending slope um, of the, the pump speed slowly tailing off. Uh, by T.152 seconds, the pump speeds have fallen below the requirements to actually perform ignition. And then the stage two loses power at T plus 152.66 seconds. They did what sounds like a heck of a lot of work. Um, and they've decided that this is almost certainly an electrical arc happening within the motor controller power supply. And what's really cool is that they modeled the engine bay um, on a computer and they they have some patterns of light and dark that they're trying to match. So if you remember from the GIF, there's a bunch of like halo glow um, with a dark hole in the middle that's the shadow cast by the engine bell. And that's not what they're trying to match up to. Instead, what they're trying to match is a tiny little splash of light on the engine bell and you can just barely see this little splash of light as it peeks around whatever that insulated corner of a box is uh, that is taking up most of the foreground of the image and on that uh, on their images uh, from the video um, there's just this little round spot of light with a streak of darkness going through. And it really looks like uh, it's probably a wire or a pipe casting a shadow that's just barely inside of a patch of light. And so they they modeled their engine bay and they placed light sources. I'm, I'm assuming they placed light sources in a couple of different places. And uh, they probably knew 
where to head, um, where to, where to start looking. But I think they probably had to move this light source around until they got the light pattern to just match. And there's this great photo in, in the shareholder presentation that, uh, I'll put in the show notes and it's, uh, a four image collage on the top is a wide view, um, like the raw, uh, field of view from the video feed, the bottom row is a close-up on this little patch of light. The left column is the video, both the widescreen and the close-up, and then on the right side is the CG. Um, And so you can see them sort of lining up their computer model so that they get just the right shape of the light. And when they do that, they see exactly where um, this arc was formed. So the question is, how did you get a big arc? Now, obviously, this this vehicle has got a lot of power on board, right? They're battery-powered fuel pumps. And so there, there is a lot of energy on board, but why would it be able to arc? One of the biggest things that high-voltage electrical engineers do is make sure that that doesn't happen. Um, and they said that there were uh, four four things yeah that that all came together and if one of these things wouldn't have happened the the failure wouldn't have happened but they all happened to line up so the the first thing is that um there's a very weird phenomenon if you think you know how close you have to get two conductors in air how close you have to get them together before an arc will form you are underestimating how easy it is to prevent an arc in low pressure, it turns out. So there's a thing called the Passion Law, uh, P-A-S-C-H-E-N. It's a last name, I believe. And it describes um, the, the gap length and the voltage required to form an arc over different gas pressures. And it's kind of fun because those are three different variables, but you don't need a three-dimensional chart. Uh, you only need a two-dimensional chart. So on one axis, you have uh, voltage. And on the other axis, you have pressure times the length of the gap. Um, and so if you make the gap a little longer, you just bring the pressure down. If you bring the pressure up, you know, it's just it's... they. Uh, they can sit on one axis. Um, and there's a unit, right, Dennis? What's what's the unit that they use for Passion's Law? It's tor centimeters are what you're seeing how the voltage yeah. changes versus, yeah. Yeah. So um, the way that this works is um, there, there are going to be different curves for different gases, but the curves all look pretty much the same. They're shaped like a check mark. Um, so the the amount of voltage that you need to to form an arc is like infinitely high in a perfect vacuum, right? There's just nothing um, to carry the charge across the gap. And then from infinity, it drops like very quickly. It drops down um, so that you don't need a lot of voltage to form an arc. And then it slowly rises up like the long tail of a check mark um, so that by the time you get to um, you know, sea level pressures, you need either a very narrow gap or very high voltages. So in this case, as they're ascending up into the atmosphere, they're slowly walking farther and farther down that check mark as the pressures drop. And they didn't quite get to the point where um, 
the amount of voltage just shoots up into infinity. Um, if they would have just been able to get a little higher in the atmosphere, it, it moves so quickly that even though the difference in pressure doesn't change that much in the upper atmosphere as you, you know, ascend another meter or another 10 meters, once you get past the bottom of that check mark, that voltage requirements just shoots up very, very quickly. Okay, so the first step in this failure chain is they entered an, uh, a regime where it was pretty easy to form uh, a spark. Uh, the second step in the, re- in, the, uh, in the chain is that there happened to be a small concentration of helium and nitrogen. And these two gases have very different um, passion curves. I mean, they, they look the same, but they're kind of placed in different, in different regions. And so apparently a little bit of helium and a little bit of nitrogen from the upper stage um, was able to kind of settle in their power supply and kind of forms a worst case scenario. I mean, these, these two gases together, uh, really kind of, kind of suck. So helium, uh, is relatively permissive of arcs at normal pressures compared to some other common gases, but, you know, it kind of dips into this danger zone at the bottom of the check and then it swoops up very quickly. It's, you, you don't have to get that low in pressure before uh, helium isn't something that you have to worry about anymore. However, nitrogen starts out as being one of the least permissive gases to arcs, but it stays in the danger zone down to very low pressures. Um, and so as they're passing through this region, if you've got both of them there, it's either one or the other that's going to cause trouble. And they kind of hand the, uh, the gremlin torch off halfway through. Hmm. Uh, okay. So, so that's the second rung. The third rung is that they call this a superimposed AC over DC in the high voltage supply. I think any normal person would call this a ripple voltage. Um, and so I'm not a hundred percent sure why they had um, such a dramatic uh, voltage change. Um, But essentially the voltage in their uh, power supply jumped from 420 volts to 508 volts. Um, And so at some, at some point they have an AC current. I'm assuming they have AC motors because the batteries are going to be supplying DC. And so I'm assuming that their high voltage power supply is taking uh, DC and converting it over to AC. And then their motor controllers are maybe tuning the AC uh, or uh, doing current regulation or something. And so maybe it's as these motors start up, they're consuming and then not consuming uh, power in a repeated, like an alternating way, right? Because they're AC motors. And so maybe there's a point where they, you know, it, it the motor gets tuned in such a way that it winds up um, pushing power back uh, into the, the control system or something like that. But anyway, so... In their AC and DC uh, conversion, they wind up getting uh, this ripple voltage that bumps their voltage way up. And even those three things wouldn't have been enough to cause the fault. The fourth rung was that there was a tiny, they said, imperceptible fault in the insulation of the high voltage loom. And high voltage loom, I'm interpreting as a wiring harness. But yeah, tiny, tiny little nick in the insulation was enough um, to to let this happen. And so the short happens 
the the batteries well the arc happens the batteries short out they dump out all of their power um, causing that brilliant flash of light um, and that shuts down the power to the second stage. The second stage just doesn't have any power to do its job. Um, it can't call back down to the ground. It can't uh, maintain attitude or anything. It's all done. So the corrective measures that they have instituted to fix this, first off, they're pressurizing the power supply system. Uh, they're going to enclose it and have a, a, an airtight seal. And so we're not going to have to worry about that passion curve anymore. Um, just, just cram some extra air in there. They say this is the brute force method, but Hey, it, it's hard to, it's hard to argue that that's not going to work. Right. Um, and then second, and I think this one is likely more important. Uh, they're increasing their testing fidelity for their higher sensitivity instruments. Um, meaning that instruments that could end the mission uh, or instruments that are delicate, um, they're actually going to be testing them in vacuum uh, more often. I, I'm sure that everything has been tested in vacuum, if only because it's flown on previous flights. Um, but they're going to include this in their, in their development flow. We're going to make sure that uh, if something could be affected even if it's, you know, vacuum rated and it, it's not a big deal, but like if passion's law is going to step in, like we're going to go ahead and, and soak that in, in some vacuum. And like that, that's all we know right now. It sounds like they're going to release more information, um, when like FAA is happy that they're done, but, uh, but we'll see if we get any more like real information than what, than what we have so far during that same presentation, they talked about the return to flight. This will be a mission for I. IQPS, um, that mission window opens November 28th and it extends into December. So hopefully we'll see, see their return to flight coming up in a couple of weeks. They also mentioned, uh, work on neutron. They have so far done a, a pretty decent amount of work on neutron. I'm not going to mention everything, but they did do a stage two, um, fuel tank, cryo hydrostatic and leak test or tests, so, you know, hydrostatic is the pressure test. Um, they got uh, seven times atmospheric pressure before they burst the tank. Um, they did uh, cryogenic tests using liquid nitrogen. Uh, they said they used 15 electrons worth of liquid nitrogen. Very cool. Um, and then the leak tests, I'm assuming those are, uh, are, are also uh, nitrogen or probably not hydrogen, but probably nitrogen. Those tanking tests that, that, that one to rupture that's some really really cool images uh, <laughs> yeah yeah i saw that people yeah. people need to check it out <laughs> yeah I'll see, I'll see if i can remember to pull some of those images out of the pdf for the show notes so with uh with these tank tests it to me it looks like it is uh the fuel and liquid oxygen tanks you know with the common bulkhead in the middle uh, but it, there's a chance it might just be one or the other um, but just judging from the proportions, I think it's probably both. And so right now they are building new tank parts because um, they destroyed their last ones. Um, They're also expecting to do additional second stage tank tests in the first half of 2024. Um, and uh, they are fabricating parts for uh, for Neutron. Um, oh, also another big thing is Archimedes, the engine. Uh, did a methylox combustion test uh, in the last month or two, it sounds like. Uh, mm. Really cool. 
So we are working towards seeing Neutron fly. I mean, it's going to be a couple of years, but it'll be pretty cool. It's going to happen. That's great. Another rocket with pretty flames. Okay. So Leon Running Man in the chat has a really cool little tidbit that I, I did not know. Loom is actually a Kiwi term for what we here in the States would call a junction box. So right, uh, high voltage uh, power lines like... We're, we're not joking around with this stuff, right? They're going to go inside a, of a junction box. And so, you know, it's, it's a casing that, that apparently was cracked uh, or damaged that the arc happened through. And so in that case, if that's where it happened, then adding additional ceiling to just make that a pressurized junction box. Great. That, that seems even easier rather than trying to encase, you know, some portion of a wire harness, uh, in a, in a pressurized vessel. Uh, Leon says it's the whole thing, the junction and the sealed lines coming in. So yeah, pretty, pretty good, uh, perspective. I mean, it's not like too terribly far from what you might guess, but that is a good subtlety that, that I would have missed. All right, so we got two short and sweets this week, and Ben, what's the first? Yes, Astra's financial future. Uh, founders Chris Kemp and Adam London offered to buy all of Astra's shares at double the current market price, then take the company private. This would accomplish two things. One, buying goodwill from public investors, and two, allowing the company to operate a little more freely in the future. The pair are not offering their own cash, but are instead working on a new round of funding. So far, they've assembled as much as $25 million in near-future funding, some of which comes in the form of replacement loans and loan purchases. They're not out of the weeds yet, but we're beginning to see the path that they're planning to take. X-37B readies for the first launch on Falcon Heavy. While the U.S. military's reusable space plane has flown to orbit six times, the Pentagon announced an upcoming mission, OTV-7, that will be the first to fly on SpaceX's Falcon Heavy. All previous X-37B missions have flown in LEO and were launched using less powerful rockets, five times with an Atlas V 501 and once with a Falcon 9 Block 4, while OTV-7 will explore, quote, new orbital regimes. The space plane is capable of long-duration flight, having previously flown over 900 days in a single mission, and will perform long-term experiments on seeds and test future space domain awareness technologies on this next mission. Well, welcome to the interview segment of the show, and we have two awesome guests with us today. We've got Jake Tufert, uh, the CTO, and Chris Carella, the CCO, respectively, of Benchmark Space Systems. Uh, Jake, it's nice to see you on the show, and Chris, welcome back. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having us on. Yeah, good to be back on, Dennis. Yeah, no, that was that was a lot of fun uh, last year when we chatted, and uh, a lot of new things have uh uh, happened since then, and I'm looking forward to hearing about Benchmark building on uh, your previous technologies that we chatted about. Uh, for anyone listening, this was back in episode 373, and uh, in particular there, we were talking a lot about the kind of hybrid motility uh, options that you were, uh, you know, uh, that you had as a product for customers, uh, including, you know, a more powerful uh, chemical propellant that people could put on their satellite buses, as well as these metal plasma thrusters, uh, which uh, were very interesting. We might get to talk to about a little later. Um, uh, we covered your uh, uh, 
collision avoidance uh, software. And so now I feel like uh, the name of the game right now is kind of building and integrating all that and kind of taking it to the next level. And so uh, as far as I can tell, that next level is called Smart Aim. So um, before we talk about that, though, could you I know, Chris, uh, you, you had kind of uh, introduced yourself and your background uh, last episode. But for anybody who uh, missed that or, you know, any new listeners, uh, could you both take a moment to maybe just uh, tell us a little bit about yourselves and your backgrounds? Yeah, sure. Sure. Um, Jake, I'll, I'll be quick here. Uh, my background is a technical mechanical engineering background in aerospace energy. And um, about six years ago at the start of Benchmark, stepped into the space industry. Um, so I'm relatively new to the space industry you know, compared to Jake and, and our co-founders, Ryan and Matt Shea. Um, but uh, since since the early days of Benchmark, I've been the market-facing point. Um, so uh, have been plugged in to the, the graciously um, knowledgeable um, and knowledge sharing market that, that we're in now. So I've learned a lot, have brought back what we're hearing, you know, from the market and from our mission partners back to the technical team and, uh, where they implement solutions. So it's been a fun ride. Um, so yeah, happy to talk about the technology and, uh, and what that means for our mission partners. So I'm uh, what is euphemistically called a, an energetics guy uh, from way back. Uh, started my career kind of in big aerospace on the shuttle program, uh, doing pyrotechnics and ordnance, um, and have worked across a, a range of things that uh, catch on fire and go boom. Um, I'm, you know, effectively a pyromaniac that figured out a way to monetize it, but um, spent some time building. Um, uh, solid motors, uh, liquid thrusters um, in the big aerospace world, kind of working with traditional propellants. Um, did that for many years and uh, decided I was I was done with uh, big aerospace and uh, went off to join a, a small company in Mojave um, and uh, spent some time in the, the desert uh, doing very interesting, cool things with a small, scrappy team, um, and then uh, went from there to uh, in-space propulsion, um, doing uh, uh, green propellants, um, and that was about seven years ago now, which is is wild to me. Um, it's been been a hell of a hell of a roller coaster ride uh, the last seven years. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, I. I feel like people have talked about this before, but like it's still very. I think it's very interesting to always uh, kind of hear about. Um, how do you feel about the differences between working for a, a small space uh, company versus a uh, big space? Yeah, it's a little bit a case of uh, the grass is always greener. Um, I mean the the issue with big aerospace companies is there's a lot of process, um, a lot of red tape, and it can be hard to get things done, especially when you're uh, kind of a cog in the machine in the middle of it. But you have resources. Um, the beautiful, frustrating, and uh, terrifying thing about uh, small companies is, especially when you're starting out, uh, you have no process and no red tape, uh, which is great for getting things done. Um, but you're also figuring out what you're doing, and uh, at least initially, you have no resources. Uh, so I've done both ways. Um, I prefer uh, the smaller, scrappier side of things, but. Uh, I'm enjoying as uh, as we've matured our organization, and we're we're still small and scrappy, but uh, we have uh, resources and you know seven years of of lessons learned now um, on how to do things right. Yeah, I realize in retrospect, talking about big versus small, it maybe is more like legacy versus kind of new, kind of aggressive and agile. Uh, 
commercial space. So, so I guess uh, to set us off, could uh, you tell us a bit about the uh, uh, Smart Aim system and uh, kind of maybe give an elevator pitch, and we can go from there? Yeah. So Smart Aim is a GN- it's an intelligent kind of GNC software layer that coexists with our propulsion control electronics. Um, and kind of the genesis of Smart Aim was. DOD um, end user looking for rap, more rapid, um, more ubiquitous or standard propulsion integration to the satellites. Uh, there, you know, we've we've talked about how satellite legacy satellite systems can be very bespoke, um, which drives years of engineering time. Um, people years of engineering time when it comes to integrating sophisticated systems like propulsion systems to the bus uh, with the with the GNC stack. So initially that was kind of the driver. Um, and then so it, to accomplish that, we've essentially abstracted GNC commands um, to a higher level um, and we can talk about those. but rather than have to drive, the different components and subsystems within the propulsion um, system itself have kind of abstracted that out. So if the GNC stack can give those commands, um, SmartAIM can essentially translate that to the lower level messaging for the different valves and cat bed heaters, which, you know, as we watch um, as things happen in space, um, you know, these are sophisticated systems to run. So it kind of automates all that. And with the onboard processing um, capability and and being able to abstract those commands, it essentially gives a layer of assistance to full um, automation of dynamic movement through space. So um, operationally, that's the impact um, by being able to have a station keeping setting or even an automated collision avoidance setting, you know, we can reduce the cognitive load that it's going to take to, to manage these large constellations. So that's kind of where it started. Um, and as we start talking to government and commercial mission partners, how might this be valuable? Uh, it kind of helps steer the, the operational end and, and, and even the timing on different milestones when, when the market will be ready for, for some of that capability. I see. So, so a customer could not just like really just pivot from kind of, you know, driver oper- driver assisted versus autopilot, but even for like different facets of their uh, satellite or constellation, they could, you know, have some that are kind of just running on autopilot in the background while other ones have this kind of abstracted uh, interface. Yeah, it's fair. Yes, um, exactly. Um, and the ones we see earlier adoption on are specific to space traffic management and debris. So collision avoidance and deorbit are the commands that, that seem to be, um, you know, most interesting right now. And yeah, I, I think we'll get into some more. So, so I, I mean, Leo seems like an obvious customer, uh, but are, are do you are you looking at other orbital regimes as well beyond Leo? Yeah, so benchmark ourselves. We have um, you know engagement with missions in Leo, Geo, and cislunar space right now, and some of our technologies you know unlock um, exploration gateways as well. But you know, as for Smart aim itself um, and, and the traffic topics, certainly Leo and, and specific altitude ranges in Leo. Um, but, but things like large transfers um, by having kind of a closed loop propulsion control 
Um, one, you know, one of the uh, offerings is a is an IMU on board, so we can control off pulsing and get long, high impulsive burns. Right, so there's fewer cleanup maneuvers. Um, so we can really help with long maneuvers as well and transfers. But but um, you know, geo has not been demanding operationally with station keeping or precision pointing, but we do have that capability as well. So I noticed you have like such a wide variety of thrusters available. Was that kind of a was that a prerequisite in order to get kind of uh, smart aim off the ground, or uh, is that just it just makes it I guess more adaptable? I'd, I'd say more the the latter. Um, it's it's not a prerequisite, but it uh, it certainly gives us a wide toolbox uh, to play with. Um, you know, some of the additional incentive for smart aim is frankly to make our lives easier because. Um, we're our own customer in the sense of uh, integrating a wide variety of uh, thrusters and different technologies uh, into prop systems. So having uh, a single abstracted layer um, is is helpful for our own purposes as well. And so I guess I have two questions. Um, one, are, are you mostly uh, finding constellations interested uh, with this, where even right, it's just, you know, perhaps, you know, uh, half a dozen uh, satellites, uh, not necessarily these mega constellations, but uh, or, or are most of uh, the people uh, that would benefit from smart aim going to be these kind of loner satellites just because, you know, avoiding <laughs> debris is an issue no matter who you are, I suppose, on orbit. I think it applies, you know, to, to mission partners with different kind of personas or roles, but um, certainly interesting to the the constellations and and not not necessarily the megas the even the folks who are operating 12 and 24 satellites share how immensely uh laborious that can be so even at that scale it starts to make sense uh just for constellation management purposes um and then even you know single assets of high value or or high control authority or precision requirements um Ride share, for instance, or down mass and reentry missions are are interesting to impulsive thrusters. Um, so certainly, by having this closed loop control, you can tighten up precision. So so it's interesting to a few sectors for those reasons as well. For the space for spacecraft, in order to adopt smart aim, are there any uh, prereqs uh, sensor wise or other parts of the uh, you know the vehicle that are uh, required in order for uh, them to use smart aim? To be able to kind of, be, I guess, be GNC capable uh, for it, or it, you know, any spacecraft with GNC can kind of work. You know, certainly the more um, uh, data and sensor capability you have to feed through to the smart aim layer, uh, the more helpful it is. But um, you know, with um, the onboard IMU and and sort of the intrinsic capability you are able to get um, an initial operational capability there, um, even if you don't want to pass anything through. Uh, so it's really, it's really tailorable. Um, we can, we can eat as much data as, um, as the uh, spacecraft wants to give us, um, but we're still useful um, even in the absence of it. So really up to the customer. Are smart aim satellites able to communicate with each other, like kind of like through a shortcut? <laughs> I suppose I, I wasn't quite sure how to phrase this, but right, uh, if and I understand that it's more than just collision avoidance. Right, you, you could do like other things, like uh, payload pointing and um, you know the attitude control and station keeping, like you've already mentioned. But when it comes to like collision avoidance in general, like is there any kind of I don't know integration between? Uh, uh, different satellites, even if they're, you know, between different satellites that are still using the same system. So you can kind of be 
you have, I guess, two cooperative satellites that are going to be trying to avoid each other and make sure you're extra safe. A future state of smart aim may have its own or even just upgraded versions will have its own GPS and or comms capability. Um, and there's specific operational use cases that are driving that. But near term, kind of the way that happens um, is through kind of an SSA data partner or the satellite operators chosen, you know, path for space traffic management. Um, we have announced a partnership with Kahan space. Um, so if you're familiar with their team, um, they do a great job of tracking assets and assessing conjunction threats. Um, so for that purpose, they're using multiple databases to get, basically the fewest blind spots on, on what obstructions may be there. And then other operators have different operational software data pathways. So we, right now we tie into that and the, and the goal is, you know, lowest latency to zero latency. So we do see onboard sensors as being optional, again, upgrades, but we wanted this capability to be available to even the you know the tier threes and and some of the newer folks uh, to Leo because there, there's a lot of confidence in the bigger operators with more financial backing and experience, but it only takes one inadvertent you know operation or or bad actor to to cause an issue. So um, we certainly don't want to add these sensors. We have kind of a bare bones minimum viable product path where we would rely on the data streams that are already in place. Yeah, and 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 Kahan uh, Space we had uh, yeah, interviewed uh, uh Araz Fazi um back in episode 377. And so uh that that uh, Pathfinder system is this um software integration uh kind of collision avoidance thing, right? Yeah, so kind of the the offering there, the combined offering is pre-integrated data connection. Um, so, so kind of responsive to your question. And in that particular case, what we're looking to demonstrate is um, Pathfinder being able to track, identify, um, and even recommend a maneuver. And then SmartAIM take that flag and convert it into operational thrust, um, you know, pulses and operations to, to complete that maneuver. So we're looking forward to doing that work together. Yeah, that again, we will we'll be able to share more together publicly soon on, on kind of where we're demonstrating that, but pretty exciting um, opportunity in the near term here. So if you have like the system where you have, you know, satellites that perhaps belong to these different companies and uh, they're all at least on some level tied into some kind of a system that allows them to like communicate their exact position and maybe there needs to be a collision avoidance maneuver made. Who makes the decision? I mean, there might be like an actual physics based solution here, but who makes the decision on which satellite moves? Is that something because that requires an expenditure of fuel? And um, I don't know if I've ever had that particular thought in my head, but like, how does that work? Like who takes responsibility for collision? avoidance, assuming that it's not something that's very obvious, like you have to avoid like a defunct satellite or something like that? It's a great question. It's related to uh, a panel that we just participated on um, with Kahan actually and some others uh, at Ascend, but it's it's almost an un you know, uh, an unregulated maritime law type scenario right now, operationally. Um, 
there are few and they are still predominantly, you know, large traditional companies that are, that are operating and, and having these scenarios. But we've seen cases where they're newer players too. Um, but it's a very small cluster of operators relative to, to what we're expecting over the next, you know, each year over year, or, but over the next five years. So, um, as of right now, it's a, it's a, the detection and awareness kind of is a self-responsibility or, or recommended best practice, but then the coordination is fairly manual still. So you can rely on government databases to track that data and even send communications, but ultimately and often it turns into a operator to operator direct discussion on, on how to manage that. Um, and so far, fairly I'll, I'll say that it's it's fairly cooperative uh, but again as you point out the cost of propellant and mission life um, is going to be relevant and, and there, there's going to be some things to unfold to determine who has the, the right of way and, and the responsibility to make the maneuver I'll expand on that Chris by saying it's it clearly that sort of mode of operation of uh, the two old guys that know each other and meet at conferences calling each other up on the phone is not a scalable way of uh, managing things as we continue to add uh, more satellites uh, into crowded LEO space. So definitely something we're keeping an eye on. And um, I think there's going to be uh, more and more um, scrutiny on establishing the rules of the road there because there's a lack of definition that uh, will need to be solved uh, in the next few years. Since you had a provoking question there, I'll just throw some numbers in. If you're, if if you, if you want to math why these decisions may may get complicated, you know, um, we do a lot of, you know, we because we have different technologies, we really try to point folks into the right tool or sub technology for, for different operations. That's why we're such a proponent of multi-technology platforms or hybrid systems. But let's say a satellite has uh, one Newton, pretty nominal, you know, size for, for small sat class, one Newton chem thruster or high thrust system. Um, and another has a Hall effect, which are great tools for station keeping and, and standard on, on most, va- you know, most satellites these days. Well, in a conjunction scenario, because of the speed operating time, cone of certainty around the conjunction, you have to operate each system quite differently. So with a chem system, you can wait until 8, 12-hour warning window and make a maneuver that has 12 seconds of firing and, and you know, may or may not even need to be fired off again because you, you can wait until that late warning. Now, a spacecraft with electric would have to make that decision much farther in advance just because of the size of the maneuver, speed of the maneuver that it's able to operate on. So they have to make that decision sooner. If they don't, then maybe the liability gets onto the other system with a higher thrust. But for that system to make that decision earlier on, they would make it days or weeks before the other satellite. And it could cost them hours or days of firing time, kilowatt hours of energy um, for a maneuver that may not have been necessary anyway. So these two assets are coming toward each other. Who has to move? And that's a really complicated um, question. And one of the reasons we recommend, you know, folks have this capability built in because um, relying on cooperative behavior is, you know, where we're at right now. But 
also puts us all at a, a little bit of a risk. Do we have uh, the UN or the Artemis Accords or any kind of uh, large, you know, supranational organizations kind of trying to look at codifying this? Yeah, so I think there's a, a lot of folks that, that are tied in and it happens at the local national level, but is happening globally. But, you know, I just, I, I won't quote who, but recently heard a regulator say, you know, regulation's really hard. So I, I see a lot of, made, you know, Orbits Act and Debris Acts that, that are necessary and there's mixed opinions on that, but I think, you know, those are right. But the regulation's going to take a lot of time to figure out. So... In the meantime, you know, making that technology accessible is really important because the regulatory pressure to have this capability and, and, and ubiquitous coordination and cooperation, you know, we may never get there, but hopefully we can. But yeah, as of right now, as, as Leo is proliferating with new actors, you know, there's a high risk and we rely on the SSA companies to share that risk, and then we just happen to have a solution for it. So Yeah, because it seems like for, for years now, the common wisdom seemed to be that when it comes to sustainability in LEO, everyone agrees it's a problem, but it's tough to be the kind of ones to go out and act on it. Kind of a tragedy of the common since we're all sharing it and you can't just point out one person and say, all right, you're in charge, go and take care of this. But now, you know, between benchmark and you know some other companies that you know we'll talk about you know having you know sustainable operations making sure that you can deorbit do you feel like something's changed in the last year or two that's kind of uh, shifted the conversation yeah so over the last year or two really just access to um rideshare you know spacex being able to bring loads of commercial satellites the operational modes where, you know, just a few years ago, the, the, the thought was often mitigated with a, a statement, space is big and space traffic isn't as, as big of an issue as people are making it out to be. Um, but it turns out, you know, v Vermont is pretty rural and desolate, but we have one road that's, that's our highway and, and it gets congested. And that's kind of what we're seeing in space. So these popular commercial orbits, although space is big, um, there's a lot of assets on, on common orbits. Um, so where they thought there might be a three to four maneuver requirement over the lifetime of a satellite, they're seeing up to monthly um, maneuvers. Uh, you know, in situation right now. So, 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 so that's kind of awoken the discussion and then likely driven by that and, and some other observations. The, the government side is now, you know, we're, we're, we've seen recent solicitations from the government looking for specifically hybrid and high thrust capability as well as high delta V or high endurance, like an EP capability. So, um, this, this ability to be agile is, is, kind of showing up in, in situation in, in the commercial markets and now even showing up in solicitations for, for government end use. Yeah, I'll, I'll extend on, on what Chris is saying. Um, I, I don't know that it's any one particular watershed event that has happened in the last few years so much as this being a major problem and something that needs to be addressed has gone from being theoretical with the rapid increase in the number of satellites we have in these high popularity orbits to being something that is lived experience for um, any spacecraft or uh, operator right now. Um, so it's, you know, it's gone from this is something we'll have to figure out in the future to, well, crap, we got to do something about this. Does um, uh, SmartAIM make any, I guess, explain, 
explicitly distinguish between kind of busier orbits or less occupied ones, or is it just that someone's this, the system's just going to be more active, um, whether autonomously or you know having somebody in the driver's seat when it comes to the, these busier ones? It's currently implemented. It's it's just that it's going to be more active. Um, certainly, I think as we explore those opportunities to. Uh, do inter-system communication, some of the things Chris was referencing earlier, um, that becomes more interesting, um, but uh, not in current, current capability. Certainly something that uh, we'll probably consider as the roadmap continues to mature. Uh, so I, I did have a question about kind of a, a fairly basic one and fairly broad, but I can wrap my brain easily around you know testing a new uh, thruster by putting it on a bench and firing it. <laughs> How do you test something like something like as expansive and versatile as as a system like this, as SmartAim? Like, is it a lot of simulations? I, I, there's obviously the hardware component. Like, how do you how do you do that? I mean, before I guess you put it on a spacecraft and do some demos, you know, in orbit. Simulation uh, on the ground. Um, we used a we use a model based uh, uh, systems engineering process that. Um, you know, helps us uh, develop the relevant algorithms, um, and you sort of progressively uh, go from lower fidelity simulations to a full hardware in the loop uh, simulation, where we're you know going so far as to actuate flight-like valves and um, have um, uh, two or more different uh, virtual systems that are are interacting in a high fidelity um, orbital simulation. This might be a silly question for the the scientist side of me, but. I guess maybe for the the lower fidelity ones, did you ever just try cranking up how many satellites you could put in Leo until even with them trying to avoid each other, it breaks, and then thus you've discovered a good estimate of the Kessler syndrome kicking in? Uh, you don't know, say it, Jake. Don't say it. <laughs> Nobody knows the saturation point. <laughs> we did the same. Ex- I was in eVTOL and we were doing urban air mobility. And uh, I'm telling you, Jake, I have PTSD. We'll, we'll pass. No. <laughs> Go ahead, Jake. <laughs> I'll I'll diplomatically say um, I I'd, I'd have to talk to our controls engineers about that. I um, they test a lot of different scenarios and I I don't know if they've done anything quite that crazy. Well, I I mentioned going to orbit. When are the uh, when are going to be the first flights uh, using the system? Uh, when are you targeting? Chris, how much are we going to stress out the controls guys on this yeah. uh, podcast? <laughs> um, sure. Well, I'll be I'll be the one that Dennis follows up with, so I'll take it all. But uh, yeah, we expect to be able to demonstrate that in 2024. Um, whether or not that mission data is available publicly, we will certainly want to share share that with goodness in, in a respectful way with our mission partner. But yeah, we're we're expecting to demonstrate some of the you know some of the earlier operations of interest that, that we went through earlier um, and. As soon as next year. Cool. Yeah, it's uh, you know, it's definitely exciting. Again, we, you know, we are trying to be propulsion technology agnostic. Talked about partnerships mm-hmm. with other technologies, so we built this mm-hmm. platform to be very flexible, and it's our our new shiny thing that that really opens the the, the door for cooperative and accessible tech to our customers. You know, a lot a lot of them have a big task with integrating one propulsion system, let, let alone two. So it's, it's really a non-starter, but, uh, by, by doing this pre-integration and making it easier, easy to plug and play different thrust, um, effectors, uh, I think, you know, I'm, I'm excited about what that means. Um, uh, on the other side, you know, benchmark, we, 
since we last chatted, Dennis, we, we focus a lot of our resources toward um, production capacity and, and capability. You know, we had talked about some of our larger orders and um, Benchmark's moved into a new facility in Vermont and bought a lot of the test and production equipment that will, uh, you know, allow us to streamline things and and reduce tourism of parts throughout the, the build process and test process. So, you know, Smart Aim's the really cool tech that, that we're bringing and looking forward to. And, you know, the, the other thing we've been hyper-focused on is just the, the maturity and production readiness of, of our flagship platform. So a lot of stuff going on. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, just, I guess, as as people, what's that been like? Uh, try to get, you know, a new facility, a uh, very, very large, expansive one and kind of uh, pivoting more uh, towards the manufacturing side of things. Well, I'm on the ground here in Vermont where that, that build has occurred. Um, and in just a couple of months, you know, it's turned into a very compelling and um, productive floor. So we were test. We just saw, I just saw the vibe table getting delivered. So, you know, it's really exciting. Mm. Teams buzzing. Um, our mission partners who are visiting really appreciate kind of this, this step up um, in readiness for us as a viable, you know, tier one supplier um we've heard hard stories about other types of you know lack of clean rooms or process or you know um testing shortcuts so we're really excited to, to kind of level up our game there and use our our series b funding toward that side um and then for jake you know I think it's got to be exciting for you, Jake, right? We're, we're finally at this, this mature platform and there's been pl- plenty of work that goes into it, but we've had a couple successful missions that you could leverage into our, our flagships. Yeah, it's, it, you know, like I said, it's been a, a seven year roller coaster uh, for me by this point. We're on, we are in the middle of design on what I would call our fourth generation of hardware, um, which is a lot of blood, sweat, and tears and hard ones lessons going into that. Um, and we're hitting a a level of cadence that's really really exciting. Um, the the other day, our um, our hot fire team um, in the California office, we did seven uh, engine acceptance tests in a single day, uh, which is is wild to me. Um, so it's there's a lot of energy. Um, we have gotten really really good at cadence and uh, and uh, executing quickly. So it's it's an exciting time. Um, but it's also, <laughs> you know, if you're uh, if you're standing still in this business, you're going backwards. And uh, right now, it feels like we're we're sprinting. So uh, it, exhausting, but good, I think, is the vibe. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> could, could I ask you to Jake? Could I ask you to compare the experience working here as opposed to like working on shuttle? Like, if standing still is moving backwards, I gotta imagine that. You know, even shuttle felt like it was moving backwards. Yeah, you know, I was I was uh, toward the end of uh, the program on shuttle, so uh, your primary job at that point was to not break things. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, it's it's just a different environment. Um, I mean, I don't I don't begrudge my time on shuttle. I, I learned a lot about how kind of a mature, uh, very high value system works, but it's it's just different. It's uh, smaller and more exciting uh, to do the stuff I'm doing now. Yeah. Did, did, I mean, did, does it feel like you're really running at, you know, as fast as you can now, uh, just based on your, your history? Or was that early enough in your career that you kind of, I mean, 
I, I guess working for the big space companies, you know, it's not it's not like really the beginning of your career, but does it does it feel like a totally new phase or is it really just like, oh, this is a different a different environment, but it's the same game? Totally new phase. It's it, it is very different feel, uh, very different environment. You know, like I said, the the grass is is always greener on the other side. Uh, I I sometimes miss having stuff that's got thirty years of heritage and uh, and mm. lessons learned to where not breaking it is your only job. But there's nothing quite like the feeling of solving that tricky problem that you've been chasing down. Wouldn't trade it. Yeah, I feel like that's fair enough. Um, would you mind talking a little bit about um, how? you're able to, I mean, cause you're kind of writing a new book, right? Like you're building your own heritage. Um, is there anything that you could talk about how you, uh, are enshrining that knowledge or how you're, uh, preserving those lessons learned, uh, for the engineers that come down the line? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And it's something that, uh, that we think of a lot about right now. Um, you know, as a small organization, everything is is kind of tribal knowledge, uh, so-called. It's, it's locked in people's heads. Um, and especially as you, you grow, um, you know, when I, when I started with Benchmark, uh, when they, um, they acquired my company, um, I think we were 18 people total. We're now sitting at pretty close to 100. Um, so dissemination of information is is very important. Um, there's a lot of activity going on right now of uh, us us old guard uh, formalizing and, and writing down um, knowledge going back to the beginning of the company, but also trying to coordinate and synthesize uh, everything that's happening on the floor now and, and getting that collected. So um, yeah, we're we're in the process of building an internal knowledge uh, library right now that's uh, accessible across the company, captures all of that, um, and uh, we'll preserve that knowledge as we go forward. Um, again, it's, uh, seven years of uh, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. So now it's it's uh, very much the time to write it all down. Jake's been a part of these conversations too, but that those experiences are translating directly to our mission partners as well. You know, we uh, our approach is get in really early in the discussion, understand what what you're trying to accomplish operationally, let you know if we don't have the tech or we do, um, but. But our operational experience, you know, gets that knowledge base gets shared right up through the front lines. And, and then when we engage with our mission partners, we get to, to share those. And, you know, I just like I tell my, <laughs> my son, you know, you, we'll share this lesson with you for free, um, or, or you can, you can learn it a more expensive way. So, you know, and, and a lot of our mission partners do that for us as well. So, uh, I just want to give Jake credit because, you know, that that's valuable beyond just, just our team too. So you've started to talk about the manufacturing that's going on and the hardware and among your hardware is a Impressive list of different types of thrusters over quite a range, uh, including uh, the metal plasma thrusters, which was a lot of fun to um, uh, learn about last year uh, with uh, our interview with uh, you and Krish. But um, I, it's almost kind of hard to know where to kind of break into this topic. And so maybe uh, uh, one important thing that I, I see is, uh, and, and also going with the idea, I guess, of uh, sustainability in a different sense, is um, the use of green propellants. And so could you maybe just talk about, I guess, 
from your view, where the industry is with with green propellants and what where you guys are and what you're utilizing and why? First off, I, I'm going to address a little bit of an elephant in the room of there's not a great definition for what a green propellant is. Um, I had a, a former colleague at uh, Aerojet that used to snarkily say, um, if if hydrazine were invented today, um, there'd be a mad rush of people uh, running out to characterize it as a green propellant. Um, so, you know, I'll, I'll give you the benchmark take on what a green propellant is. Um, for, first off, uh, green does not mean safe. Um, anything that is a chemical rocket propellant is intrinsically high energy. It's intrinsically something that has hazards to it. Um, if anyone tells you they've got a propellant that's intrinsically safe, uh, they haven't been in this business long enough or learned the right lessons yet. What a green propellant is, from our perspective, is something where the precautions you need to take to use it safely are significantly lower cost and lower um, logistical complexity than the traditional prop like hydrazine. Um, specifically, um, and something that's particularly relevant for uh, rideshare applications, which is you know where we find ourselves a lot of time with our products, the precautions you need to take with uh, peroxide with ascent. You're not um, requiring fueling personnel to be in full scape suits. You're not requiring an evacuated PPF to do fueling ops. Um, so the cost is significantly lower um, than, than hydrazine to do uh, those ground ops. Um, and it's less of an interruption to other concurrent ops that may be happening in, happening in the payload processing facility. So that's what green means to me. Again, it's an energetic propellant. You better respect it or it'll kill you. Now, to, um, to the specifics of the technologies that we've chosen to work on, um, I'll talk first about peroxide because it's, it's uh, what we're most mature in right now. One of the things I like to tell my, my uh, team in the propulsion development group, you don't get to choose whether to fight demons when you're developing propulsion hardware. You just get to choose which ones. We chose peroxide because it is it was a relatively straightforward path to get a uh, reliable, um, high-performance product that had a reasonable mix of disadvantages that we were willing to tackle. Things that are, are straightforward to handle if, if you know what you need to hit. Um, one of those being material compatibility, um, something that we've spent a lot, a lot, a lot of time on and lessons learned in is characterizing all of the materials that uh, we use, really nailing down our processes so we can use uh, peroxide safely and well. And, you know, as long as you address those particular demons, you end up with something that's at parity uh, with uh, a monomethyl hydrazine nitrogen tetroxide system when it comes to specific impulse um, and actually beats it on a per volume basis. Um, so, you know, that is, that is the particular mountain that we chose to climb early on with the business. Now, with that said, you know, as Chris alluded to, we're somewhat technology agnostic in that, you know, I and others in this, this company have been doing this long enough. None of us are zealots. Uh, there's no perfect rocket propellant. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that hydrogen peroxide ticks every single box and it's the perfect thing and everyone should use it for every single application. Anyone who tells you that about any propulsion technology, again, has not done enough of the trades, has not been in the business long enough. 
and to that end, we continue to explore new technologies. Um, Ascent is something that we're we're excited about. We're putting a lot of resources into. Um, you know, you, you've most likely read we've gotten some major contracts there. There are other demons to fight there. Um, you know, it's it's harder to ignite. Um, viscosity is all over the place. Uh, density is all over the place. So, different set of technical challenges, but really interesting performance profile for certain missions. Um, so that's kind of the next hill for us to climb. You had mentioned some of the advantages and disadvantages, but with hydrogen peroxide specifically, like if it's just about on par with something like hydrazine, why wasn't that used so much sooner in the industry, just given how toxic hydrazine can be? Exactly why is this like a new thing? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because it's a new old thing, right? Um, hydrogen peroxide is, is one of the earliest uh, rocket propellants that was used um, going back to, to the 1940s. Um, I'll say that... Um, for one thing, peroxide has changed over the years. Um, if you go back and read uh, Ignition by, by John Jury Clark, he's got kind of this famous uh, chapter about peroxide called Always a Bridesmaid, um, and it, it covers uh, some of the history there. Peroxide, even into the 60s, was fairly low purity, um, and stability was um, just kind of a pain in the butt. Um, and it was the 60s, man. Nobody cared about toxicity. Um, and the the money was endless. You're doing this on, on multi-billion dollar programs. So the logistics and infrastructure required for doing hydrazine, it was, it was a decent bet to make at the time. Those trades are different when you're talking about smaller, more agile new space companies. And, you know, concomitantly, Peroxide's gotten a lot better. Um, the semiconductor industry is by far the largest user of hydrogen peroxide um, in in the world, um, and they have driven uh, purity and standards um, into that uh, chemical supply chain that are have been really really good for product purity, um, and we get to take advantage of that. So your your stability of peroxide is is much better than it was um, in the 60s. Uh, it's a purer product and. The other side of that too is, you know, peroxide, I'm not saying it's impossible. It's hard to do for something like a 15 or 20 year geo mission. Um, for a five to seven year LEO mission, current levels of purity, well-designed system, high compatibility, that's a sweet spot. Um, it works great for that mission. So yeah, the technology's gotten better and also the market has changed. That is a fantastic overview of green propellants, if I could just say, Jake. <laughs> so I'd heard of um, some other green propellant. I don't remember what it's called. It had a huge name. We talked about this years ago. That was something that I imagine would be very difficult to perhaps make and maybe was even like proprietary. Do you know anything about that? Like, is that something that's kind of on par with hydrazine or, you know, hydrazine peroxide as well? Um, do you were do you remember um, more specifics about... Uh, I think he might be talking about uh, hydroxyl ammonium nitrate. Maybe. That's um, that's actually in the same sort of general family as Ascent. Um, unfortunately, the specific composition of Ascent is, uh, is ITAR, so I can't say specifically what's in it, but um, you can... Hmm sort of look at what is out there publicly and it's it's in this family called uh, ionic monopropellants which hydroxyl ammonium nitrate is is one of the common um, uh, constituents of, of ionic monopropellants broad strokes and again this covers ascent um, really interesting from a performance standpoint um, they are almost up to bipropellant levels of performance but uh, you know in a monopropellant package so plumbing is more simplified um, the, the system can be lighter, less complex, excruciatingly difficult to ignite, um, which 
you know, that is something mm. we've made some strides in with some specific technology. Um, we're excited about where that's going to go, but it's uh, it's still a work in progress. So, you know, talk to me in about uh, two or three years uh, again, and uh, we'll see uh, where the state of the art is then. Could you talk about uh, catalysts and the, what is it, Han family of, of monopropellants? Because um, like, I, think, I think we started with you needed a catalyst and now we're moving towards, Hey, we kind of, we can do this on our own. Yeah. Um, the brutal thing with those, um, those propellants is you have by propellant levels of performance, which means you have by propellant levels of temperature. Um, and then, you know, coupled with having a really high temperature combustion environment, uh, you're also extremely oxidizing oxidizing. And Oh, by the way, um, the exhaust products are acidic. Um, so it's a super, super fun environment for a catalyst bed uh, to live in. Um, so, you know, there's been tons of work done on, on finding catalysts that will survive there. Um, you, you can actually, you can go through the literature and um, some of the initial work with that propellant, they were firing off um, hydrazine thrusters with it, um, just like standard hydrazine S405 catalyst. Um, and it worked great for 30 seconds before the entire catalyst bed um, ended up coming out the end of the thruster. So yeah, that's that's been a hard slog uh, for the industry. Um, very incremental progress there. There are some, uh, some people that I think have nailed that at the smaller scale. There's there's like really starting to look like pretty reliable and good uh, one Newton um, and sort of five Newton uh, thrusters using those propellants with a catalyst bed. What we're focused on is the other part of the problem, which is how do you make something like an Apogee kick engine um, using this propellant? And the answer is you're probably not going to do it with a catalyst bed. So yeah, it's Again, it's a different set of demons to tackle, but uh, we think we're on to something with uh, some of the, the non-catalytic ignition technologies that we're testing out. I do have a general question, I guess, about thrusters when when you read about them having multiple modes, right? Like some of these high-test peroxide, you can do this in monoprop versus uh, biprop. How does that actually like look in practice? Do you just – does a company sometimes not want – you know, for their satellite, they only want the monoprop mode and you just have like an empty tank next to it, you know, uh, uh, that you normally would put the biprop or are there ways that you then reconfigure it, whether you want to have it in two mode versus one mode or configured and locked into just a single of the two? How does that actually work? Yeah. So, so some of it gets into your mission uh, architecture. So our, our peroxide thrusters are all built... Um, uh, with a catalyst bed. So, you know, the first step that happens in the thruster is peroxide goes through the catalyst bed, gets real uh, excited and uh, breaks into oxygen and steam at high temperature. Um, you either add fuel to that to get your biprop performance or you don't. Um, and so the reason that you wouldn't is if you're doing really tight precision maneuvers, doing a lot of small pulses, um, having that extra biprop step of mixing um, is going to throw your repeatability off a little bit. So if you want really, really high precision, you just run um, the oxidizer side. Just don't turn the fuel valve on. And, you know, you'll want to adjust the mix of how much fuel and how much oxidizer you've got on the satellite to reflect the operating modes that you're using for your particular mission, but it's the same thruster. You don't change the thruster. That does give us the option of every one of our biprop thrusters, we can sell a cheaper monopropellant version of it, um, where we give you the, the cheaper metals for the nozzle that'll melt if you run fuel. 
So it's, it, you know, it's kind of nice for us because we intrinsically get two thruster designs out of every single thruster. Thank you. I've always wondered about that. Well, I guess uh, now I've just been wondering uh, what's next for Benchmark. I think I'll jump in with some broad strokes here and say 2023 has been an interesting year uh, for the industry. Um, Chris mentioned that we went out to get our Series B um, earlier this year. What he didn't mention is we did it the week that Silicon Valley Bank failed. <laughs> which I, I think if I, if I sent you my Fitbit uh, data, you could probably pick out exactly when we went to our Series B. Um, we did close it successfully, but it's, you know, the industry is clearly in a period of, of reckoning and consolidation. Um, we are past the point of, of uh, telling a good story um, and making a good PowerPoint. And I think 2024 is, is the year of shut up and fly. So I think that's our theme for 2024 is really pushing execution and delivery of hardware where we are, are living the story that we're telling. Um, so, you know, maybe it's, it's not sexy to say it's all about execution, but uh, it really is all about execution. Yeah, Jake nailed it. I mean, I don't have much additive to say. You know, it's a pretty good closing <laughs> statement. I hear you. I wanted to give you opportunity, but I that um, I'm with you. Okay, well, thank you so much for taking all this time to talk to us. We've got two final questions that we ask every guest. Uh, the penultimate question is, where would you like to be found on the internet? Hey, thanks. Yeah, so BenchmarkSpaceSystems.com is our website, so you can find out about our latest missions and products and, and how to reach different parts of the company there. Read about our mission. Um, we also uh, update our business LinkedIn page. So that'll be in the notes, Benchmark Space Systems on LinkedIn. And if there's any specific questions for myself or Jake, um, we'll put those in the notes as well. Feel free to reach out on LinkedIn or make a comment on something that we share. And uh, happy to continue any discussion around prop and, and space mobility. Wonderful. Okay. And so one final question. You might need to think for a moment. And so whoever wants to answer first can. But what is the least significant question within your industry to which you have not been able to find an answer? What is the carrying capacity of Leo? Nice. <laughs> you know, oddly enough, that's that's the second time that's been the answer. Not, I love it. <laughs> not exactly. But <laughs> uh when is Elon Musk going to give up on social media and go back to space stuff? <laughs> Boy, that's... Uh, is that a small question? <laughs> certainly a question. I would love to know the answer to that. <laughs> okay. Well, this has been fun. Thank you so much. I learned a lot. Uh, Jake and Chris, thanks again for joining us. Thank you. Thanks a lot for having us. Moving on to this week in spaceflight history, we have uh, five winners. We have Chris, Leon Running Man, the Greek Psychile, and Uncle Willie, uh, and they all get bonus points. And the clue was uh, the cold wind blew but once. And the event is uh, November 15th, 1988. And it was the first and the only launch of Buran, the Russian space shuttle, let's call it that, or the Soviet space shuttle. And the actual launch uh, was successful. And so when that happens, and also we've never, I don't think we've ever done a twist on the Buran. So I kind of want to include some information that didn't pertain necessarily to, you know, the actual event, but did pertain to the vehicle itself. So I just wasn't sure what to focus on. So I just kind of listed some interesting things. So yeah, this is going to be kind of a weird hodgepodge of information. 
because I mean, we could talk about this probably forever, right? Um, this is actually a very interesting vehicle. And maybe one day we'll have another twist if about some other aspect of it. But I actually don't know what that would be. Like maybe when uh, the project was founded, right? Yeah, I don't know. The the fact that they have uh, Wikipedia entries on the Buran spacecraft and the Buran program means that there is a lot of stuff there. But exactly picking out what you would want, to, yeah. what would be a future thing to cover, I don't know. And to be to be clear, the problem isn't that we don't want to talk about Buran. The problem is that we don't have very many events to tie it to, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. We could talk about its cancellation. Yeah. <laughs> we could talk about it getting crushed in the hangar. One of the surviving yeah, ones. Yeah. I mean, that's that's um, another event. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm sure everyone knows that this was basically developed kind of to be the Soviet answer to the space shuttle. Um, I mean, that is largely what it was for. And we've talked about this many times that the shuttle, in like the very early days of development, was kind of seen as maybe being some kind of like believe it or not troop transport you know i mean that was kind of the initial idea and so i think the soviet union was thinking we have to keep up because it was after all still i guess the days of the space race but um you know that was still mm. i guess kind of a thing um so yeah they kind of wanted a space shuttle of their own and really in so many ways what i point out is how similar these systems are, but also how different they are, um, which I know that doesn't make much sense, but they're very similar vehicles in like size, their dimensions, uh, their weight, their lift capacity, although there are some differences, but also they kind of do go about it in a very different way. And of course, you know, it does look like the space shuttle. It, maybe they did try to make it look just like the shuttle. I'm not sure, but boy, does it look like the space shuttle. I, I think it's really like a form follows function kind of thing. Like here's right. a form that does this job. So this launched from um, the Baikonur Cosmodrome. Uh, we mention that all the time. Uh, there were no payloads uh, except for, you know, telemetry equipment to monitor uh, systems on board and a whole bunch of batteries. Uh, since uh, normally it would have fuel cells, uh, which uh, this, the Soviet Union did not put on any spacecraft up until this point, or at least they would have. But since this was just a test flight, uh, they did not have fuel cells on board. Uh, so they just, you know, use batteries. So I guess the one big difference in launching the vehicle and like really maybe the key difference between this and a vehicle like Space Shuttle is that it didn't have, it had engines, but those were just for orbital maneuvering. Um, it didn't have any big engines to take the thing into orbit. So um, it pretty much just relied it didn't, on boosters. It didn't have SSMEs. <laughs> right. It, yeah. I mean, it didn't have, yeah, it didn't have anything like an RS-25 engine. Um, it just had, you know, kind of like the equivalent of the Ohms engines, right? So like, if you think of it that way, that's kind of how it looked on the back. So yeah, it did have a lot of boosters and it had four boosters mounted around a central core. And the central core is very similar, except that that's what actually had the engines on the bottom of it. Um, but it was about the same size and it held almost exactly the same amount of liquid hydrogen and oxygen. So it was about the same size as a shuttle external tank. But uh, yeah, so it had the four boosters, which uh, each had four of the RD-170s. Um, and, you know, we've probably talked about those many times. Um, and those are RP-1 LOX engines. Uh, and then on the central core, it had four of the RD-0120. I'm not sure how to say that, but yeah, the 0120s. And uh, those were Hydrolox engines. So I thought it would be fun to do some comparison between Shuttle and Buran, since that's kind of what everyone does anyway. Um, now, there's a whole <laughs> lot of comparisons you can make. But like I said, like a lot of the stuff is actually pretty similar. So I kind of just wanted to point out the 
big differences. One thing that I didn't know is that this was supposed to crew 10 people as opposed to just seven. Uh, so right there, hmm. that's pretty impressive. Uh, it's not any bigger on the inside though. It's actually, or it's slightly larger by just two cubic meters. So it's actually 73 cubic meters as opposed to 71. Um, and that's what the shuttle has. So yeah, two cubic meters, but three extra people. So yeah, I imagine it would be pretty cramped in there because we've all seen photos of uh, the astronauts inside the shuttle hmm. And it's pretty tight. Yeah, technically, shuttle did have like like for like the rescue shuttle missions. <laughs> you shove three more people in there, and that or like or you could have ten in total, but that would be unpleasant, generally speaking. Yeah, and, and wasn't there like a seat you can put down to get an eighth person? Isn't that right? Oh yeah, they they like on a normal mission they did fly with eight once, but yeah, on 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 these rescue ones they would send up. Like, yeah, I guess they'd send up a bear crew and then they would basically have reclined, you know, you'd be on your back, three people on, uh, laying on their back in the, it's called the ditch, which is the area where the internal airlock used to be. So in between the, uh, one of the avionics bays and the, uh, the restroom down on the ground there is where you'd, you'd lay your extra people. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, the next interesting difference is that the Buran had 38,600 heat tiles versus the 24,000 on shuttle. And since they're about the same size, that's kind of a big difference. Uh, so I guess it's just a whole lot of little ones or more smaller ones as opposed to fewer larger ones. <laughs> um, and it does kind of look that way when I see pictures of it, like I can kind of maybe, I mean, you can't see it too well, but uh, I think, yeah, I think maybe there was just a fewer mm. heat tiles. And during this first launch, once it landed, it, I think it was missing about like seven or eight tiles. So yeah, a couple fell off. <laughs> Apparently nothing too important because it made it back safely. Story as old as time, evidently. Yeah. And uh, one big difference between this and shuttle is it, it had what they called the automatic landing system. And now that's just what's translated because like pretty much all this information is translated from Russian. So I don't know what we would call it, but you know, like this is what Google Translate calls it. This is pretty impressive. And, and uh, I'm kind of, is this strange to anyone else that this thing could completely take off and land? I mean, not completely by itself, but it did need to be crewed. Um, and that is indeed how this was done. I didn't mention that, but there were no people on board this. I should have mentioned that first, uh, since this was just a test flight. Mm -hmm. uh, so the thing can operate somewhat autonomously um, and indeed did so. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, but that's impressive, right? For 1988. I don't know. That just seems pretty cool to me. Yeah, I think it's incredible. <laughs> Perhaps it's not that impressive. I don't know. But um, that's something the shuttle, as far as I know, is not capable of, um, unless you know otherwise, Dennis. I mean, if there was no one on board shuttle, they could did, they bring it back? They did technically in the later like days when they you know post columbia had like a shuttle return capacity where if they did during the hubble servicing mission end up having one of the shuttles crippled on orbit they would be able to plug in some cords from the flight deck into the uh some of the avionics uh, bays in the mid deck and then try to get it to come back and land at edwards but we never had to do that and who knows if that would actually work especially if it was designed for a crippled orbiter but but technically, yeah, we did look into it to that extent. <laughs> yeah, that is true. And uh, one further difference is that uh, Buran had a payload mass of 30 tons versus 20 tons. So that's impressive. Uh, and maybe that's because there's the, it, it was not carrying those large engines. Because, it, you know, again, it's about the same size, but it's, you know, it can carry 10 tons more. Uh, so 
maybe that's just down to the fact that there's no engines on the shuttle or, you know, the Buran. So that's also kind of impressive. And then the other interesting thing was it had turbojets. Now, did either of you know this? I mean, I'm sure we've maybe discussed it, but I don't recall doing so. It had basically jet engines on board, or at least it would have. This one did not have those. It did not launch with those. And I'll explain why in a second. But yeah, uh, turbojets. <laughs> that's so cool. I don't, I don't, it's one of those things where like you could hear anything about Buran and you'd just be like, yeah, of course. Like, I, <laughs> yeah. And so I can't quite remember I mean, if I knew that for sure or not. I only know because I've seen a video of it taking off from a, from a pad. Like it could just, yeah. it didn't need a shuttle carrier aircraft, which is yeah fascinating. Well, you might've seen, I mean, it didn't take off from a pad, but there was a- Runway I meant, sorry. Yeah, there was a test. Yeah, there was a test vehicle where they had tested the engines. It pretty much is a space plane looking vehicle. It it looks just like the Buran, but it's not. Um, and that was just to actually test the vehicle during flight. So, um, but yeah, it has these turbojets. So exactly why does it have these? Now this actually has to do with being able to land a space shuttle type vehicle during the Cold War when you don't have many places to land because most other places on Earth might not be your ally. And I think that's kind of what it came down to. So hmm. they needed to have like better cross range and they needed to have more lift. Uh, this thing couldn't divert to somewhere else. So um, that apparently drove uh, the need for these engines. And they did look at perhaps like building some more cosmodromes uh, in more like remote parts of Russia. And they had thought about Cuba, but again, that's too close to enemy territory. Uh, so they didn't want it landing there. So they pretty much had to make sure that they can get back to the Soviet Union. And so, yeah, that's why they wanted these jet engines to actually carry it a little bit further. Mm. But yeah, they didn't have them on this flight because uh, it was a little bit too massive and it probably would have thrown off the center of gravity since, you know, they didn't really have anything in terms of payload and so on and so forth. Yeah. And so the complications of actually putting a turbojet on a space vehicle, <laughs> uh, they're pretty interesting. So um, I just want to go down the list really quickly. Uh, proper shielding during the ascent and reentry that you know makes sense uh, because you have uh, fan blades and so on and so forth and you have the whole intake and you have just you know like all this complex machinery and it's uh, plowing through the atmosphere at God knows what Mach number uh, that can be a problem um, and <laughs> uh, yeah like I said it does shift the center of gravity um, and it already has the orbital maneuvering system on the back and so it probably I guess would have been a little bit rear heavy if you know that's a term mm. um, so that was a problem. And maybe perhaps the biggest reason why you wouldn't want them is that they do just add additional mass uh, because you do need fuel for these things and the actual engines themselves are not light. So uh, that's a big con there. And qualifying the systems for surviving in space because I don't know if there's ever been anything like a jet engine flown in space. I think this would have been a first, um, which is a cool thought yeah. to have. Like I actually kind of like the idea of it, but carrying a jet engine into the vacuum of space and then having it on orbit for maybe, you know, several weeks and then bringing it back and hoping that it actually works when you kick it back on. That sounds a little scary. And it <laughs> yeah. seemed to me that that would require extensive testing on orbit before you could actually fly something like that safely, because we just don't have any experience with, you know, putting jet engines in space. No, that's fair. Technically, you know, like we've flown, we've flown jet engines on parabolic flights to close to the edge of space, but like that's, that is nothing like, yeah, having all of that all the liquid propellant lines uh, and all of those really tiny fan blades and everything going through the pressure and temperature changes. I mean, they probably would have spent a lot of time worrying about the temperatures of their jet engines 
you know, making sure they don't get too cold or too hot or whatever. Yeah. And then the last reason why you might not want to put a turbojet on a space shuttle um, is that these are very hard to ignite at high speeds. So it's kind of like a ramjet or scramjet, kind of a similar problem. You are re-entering at very high speeds and then you have to turn this thing on. Uh, that can be tricky um, at high Mach numbers. So not necessarily the best idea, but I mean, a cool concept and I would have liked to see that work. Um, and then one last thing, apparently this was something that was actually being considered for the space shuttle, but it was, I guess, dismissed pretty early on. Maybe Dennis, you know about that? I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but uh, they were actually looking into that uh, for shuttle. And I'm guessing that due to these reasons, they thought, no, that's not going to, you know, that's just not going to work. Yeah, earlier when they were hoping for more money for shuttle, I think when it, that might have been part of the, uh, the 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 fully reusable shuttle system where you bring mm -hmm. back your first stage, which would be a winged vehicle as well. But there were so many shuttle concepts, I can't keep track of the yeah. kind of mm -hmm. zoo of them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, one other cool thing, and this didn't even fly on this. Like, again, I, I just <laughs> I didn't know what to mention, but I thought this was cool. The docking module that would have been on board if this were like an actual, you know, crewed flight. So it sits inside the shuttle bay. It is a spherical 2.7 meters in diameter compartment, and it has a retractable tunnel, like a, what would you call it? A telescopic tunnel that can actually extend away from the orbiter in order to dock with something like Mir, which is what they were planning on doing with it, among other things. Um, and we were just talking about how hard it is to dock shuttle to Mir, I think what, like last week, because it comes awfully uh -huh. close. <laughs> so this is how they get around that. They just have a retractable tunnel, which I thought was the coolest thing. I don't know about you, but I think that's <laughs> that's almost like something out of science fiction. Like, oh, it actually extends away from the vehicle. Yeah, it's, that's, like, that's such the Soviet way of trying to solve yeah. airlocks. I mean, and it's things like that. such a neat concept. I'm not quite sure. I, I couldn't find much on it, like how exactly it worked. It seems to be like a rigid structure that just extends out of the main fixed structure. And then once extended, it has a total height of 5.7 meters. So it, it, it can extend pretty far out there. So you have like an actual tunnel that you crawl through and then you can get to, you know, the station or, you know, like whatever you're going to. Um, and it does have an A-pass docking mechanism on the back of it, um, uh, which is to be expected because uh, that's what they would use. But yeah, isn't that cool? And so this brings up the problem, like what if you can't bring that thing back in because that means you can't close the bay doors and then you have a serious problem. So they actually had it rigged with pyrotechnics in such a way that I guess they would have to, you know, disconnect some other things as well because it is attached to the crude compartment of the shuttle. So you can't just, you know, blow the thing off. But yeah, I mean, you know, if necessary, you can make a couple of disconnections and then you can fire off some power tactics and then you can just separate the whole thing and then you can close the shuttle bay doors. So that's mm. how you deal with that problem if it were to arise. A really interesting, you know, solution to something that could be probably catastrophic but is also very convenient. So you kind of want to keep it, which is you know, <laughs> this little telescopic docking module. I don't know. I, I just think it's the neatest thing. And I don't know if anything like that has ever been flown in space. I agree. I think it's super awesome. And I think the earliest, like I think uh, Alexei Leonov, the Voshkod 2, that airlock I think was extendable as well. I think it was inflatable. Or inflatable, yeah. Inflatable is extendable. <laughs> it's a, a subset of extending things. So... But yeah, not quite like this one, but... So once the Buran was in orbit, it really just did two orbits and then it came back. So like just a quick test. And what's interesting is that the automated system on the approach to land, uh, it was actually supposed to do a bank to the south and then make a final approach to the runway. So it kind of had to, you know, come around, but it instead decided, and this is something that, you know, it did by itself, it actually headed north and then it made that turn. And that's just due to crosswinds, which were actually not 
allowing it to shed as much velocity as it needed to. So this is a decision hmm. that apparently was made by you know the automated system because the ground control were kind of surprised by that. And then they said, oh, no, it's fine. It's actually going this direction, which is just, I don't know, that's just amazing to me. Okay, yeah, it's, it's a remarkably, yeah, advanced vehicle. And it's the late 80s. And they're having mm. it be able to do this. I think it's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, 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 yeah. I'm feeling your, you know, sense of amazement uh, with it. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that amazement was short-lived. So yeah, this was the only flight. Um, this was a completely successful test. But shortly after that, because like I said, this happened in 1988. And then what was it? 1991 when the Soviet Union was officially done for? Um, or was it 90? I don't remember which, but you know, around then. So shortly after, there was no more funding. And the next flight would have been in 1993. No one knew what to do with the program. And, and, and that seems to be what happened. It, it, it was almost as though things were in such disarray that they didn't even properly shut down the project. And so there was no money to shut down the project. And that's why now we have it just like sitting in some hangar in Kazakhstan, uh, because it just kind of, you know, abruptly ended. And that was it. Uh, they didn't take down the program. They just kind of all walked away from it. And so now it's uh, sitting in a collapsed hangar in Kazakhstan somewhere. Uh, and it's just a complete mess, <laughs> um, which is kind of a sad ending to something that I think would have actually, it seems to me, and I don't know the numbers on what this would have cost, but given how expensive shuttle was, I think that this could have flown for a fraction of the cost and done most of the same kind of work, you know, mm. and maybe would have even been safer because there's no solid rocket boosters. You know, I mean, this can be throttled. It seems safer for that reason, or just for that reason alone, it seems safer to me. I mean, it did lose a couple of tiles, but I'm sure that could have been fixed. It does seem like like a very well thought out system, like in typical Soviet fashion, it seems simpler uh, and more reliable. I think that's the the key thing, or at least it seems that way. I don't know. Like it, that's just a feeling that I get. It, that that's totally based on nothing really, <laughs> but that's just my impression. Um, so mm. um, yeah, I mean, I always thought it was like a shuttle copy that just couldn't get off the ground because it wasn't actually functional or like something like it could never actually work. But no, it it did. It's just that then came the end of the Soviet Union. And so, yeah, that was the end of it. But uh, had that not been the case, I think it probably would have flown in probably like many times, actually. But yeah, that's your This Week in Space Flight History. <laughs> Very cool. This is great. Yeah. Thanks for uh, showing that Baran was, uh, yeah, more than just kind of a, uh, like an afterthought. <laughs> it was a yeah, pretty yeah. awesome vehicle. And even though it obviously was copied from shuttle it had enough differences to make it very interesting for sure okay ben next week is the 21st to the 27th of november do you have a clue for us yes i do uh so next week in 1962 the clue is clouds before aurora clouds before aurora okay well if you have a guess as to what this clue is referencing email us at info at the or shoot us a toot on mastodon using the hashtag this week SF, or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash discord for an invite to our discord server and type slash TWSF to hand your guests directly to Tombot. And good luck, everybody. Good luck. So let's do some upcoming spaceflight events. Uh, we have four of them. Well, possibly four. Maybe not. What's the first, Ben? <laughs> yeah, don't don't hang on the edge of your seat for any of these. Um, so first up is an unknown payload flying on a Long March 2. Uh, it's flying out of Jiuquan, Launch Area 4, on Thursday, November 16th, sometime between 0349 UTC and 0417 UTC. 
Um, but you know, one of those, we don't, we don't know. We're running off of no TAM, so we'll see what happens. And while we're scratching our heads about that, we'll be scratching our heads about, uh, an upcoming Falcon 9 Block 5 taking Starlink Group 7-7 potentially to orbit. Uh, but we have just the NET right now for Friday, November 17th. And so this one though, when it does fly to Leo, we'll be flying out of Vandenberg Space Force Base at Slick 4E specifically. And then after that, on the 17th, we have the launch of a Falcon 9 Block 5 with uh, Starlink Group 628. So this is another batch of Starlinks with a window of 0400 UTC through 0831 UTC. So a four and a half hour long launch window. And it's launching from Cape Canaveral from Slick 40. So, yep, just another Starlink. After that, our last one, I hope, I hope, I hope this would be pretty cool if this actually goes off. It is Starship yep. doing integrated flight test too. Um, they're expecting to separate the booster 170 seconds into flight and uh, return to land. Well, return to water. <laughs> uh, the second stage is doing like what's technically a suborbital hop, but it's the one where they're flying halfway around the world uh, to Hawaii. So this will be pretty cool if they pull it off. Launch library is saying that it's going to be an unpowered splashdown. So I, I thought they were going to try to land the thing, but I, I guess they're okay with it. Um, getting some cracks in it. But anyway, Flight Test 2 of Starship is currently planned for Friday, November 17th, between 1300 hours UTC and 1539 hours UTC. And those are your upcoming spaceflight events. All right, and that means it's time to do the show, and we'd like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Chris S., Colin, The Greek, Mike, Astro, Dino Nochi, Leon Running Man, Canuck Chemist, Delta V, and Fonji Ricola for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And if you want to support the show, please tell a or better yet, leave us a review wherever you listen. You can also visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign and affiliate links. Get in touch. Find links to our mailing list, Discord server, and Mastodon account at theorbitalmechanics.com slash about. Or you can skip all of that by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So that's it. We will see you all next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.